Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. Is being a fiduciary enough? Is being a fiduciary enough, or do you need to offer more? And is AI everything or are there other places to look in this market? All you've heard about for the last month and a half or two months is AI. It seems to be everywhere. Next, an ETF that offers 100% downside protection. Folks, you can't lose money. You can invest in the stock market and you can't lose money. Hell, we might as well just close up Revere and go home. We're done. The CTF can just invest and nobody can ever lose money. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the pros and cons of that. And it really is taking a shot at the indexed annuities. Uh, BlackRock, I'm pretty sure it's BlackRock that offered it, um, is now trying to take a shot at the insurance companies because they got a lot of money. BlackRock wants it. We'll talk about that. And then the special rebalancing on the NASDAQ. I'm sure you felt that yesterday. Maybe that was part of it. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just earnings. But that the, the they are going to rebalance the Magnificent Seven, the big seven NASDAQ heavyweights, QQQ, NASDAQ 100. Over the ne- They're actually doing it as we speak, but over the next couple of days, we'll kind of talk about that because the, there was no transparency. They didn't actually let everybody know how specifically they were going to do it. Okay. And then Tesla and Netflix and a few others took a big hit yesterday. What is our, what is our plan? What is Revere's plan? And that'll segue into the mailbag. We got a great question on Tesla early on in the week. So with that, we'll get right into it. So there, and by the way, all these, all these, um, um, articles or all these topics I'm talking about are in the show notes. You can go look at them. You can read them if you want. I, I've done some, I didn't put too many in there. I do some other research over and above just those articles, but those are just kind of the teaser uh, things to kind of get you the the premise. Now, um, um, so a lot of people are now questioning, you know, every because there are more and more people being fiduciaries now. So remember, the rise of being a fiduciary fee-based only and getting rid of the conflicts of interest, broker, insurance agent, you know, surrender penalty, heavy commissions um, system, that kind of went away. Slowly over time, people are becoming more and more fee-based only, more and more advisors like us. I did it when you could first do it. Year, I did it 25 years ago. And now there's a big push to do that. And so now... But when people were first doing it, all you had to do was say you were fiduciary and you, you brought in money. Because people liked the fact that there weren't conflicts of interest with a commission uh, salesman. So first of all, I got to ask you, the listener, do you have a fee-based only fiduciary? 
If not, why not? Really? Seriously? Why not? Why do you want to pay commissions and have surrender penalties and expensive things? Look, even in the insurance and annuity space, there's fee-only annuities and insurance where you don't pay a commission. There are no surrender penalties. You can put the money in one day and take it out the next. You don't hear about those because why? There's no big commissions. That's the whole point. So in any event, is being a fiduciary enough? I, I, I Personally, I say absolutely not. No, a fiduciary is just how you get paid. Now, being paid free of conflicts of interest so you're on the same side as the client instead of on opposite sides is obviously better. I agree with that. However, if you're just going to do the pie chart, buy and hold, set it and forget it, or the pie chart with the rebalancing on some arbitrary date, end of the year, semi-annually, what have you, and you're just going to ride the market cycles, then you don't need an advisor. I could show you how to do that in 15 minutes. Hell, there are ETFs called target date funds that have the date that you're looking at retiring, and they kind of do those pie charts for you. So if you're just doing a passive investing strategy with just very little research, you could do that very inexpensively. Now, to do that, you will have to go through 25 35% drawdowns every four or five years. That's just the deal. And they tell you, the market always comes back. Just don't worry about it. And that's fine if you're an oak tree and you can live 400 years. But if you're a human, you've only got about 20, 30 years of aggressively saving and 20, 30 years of aggressively spend, or spending retirement. So you really don't have that time frame. So for humans, it's really important as to when those cycles happen. And so maybe you do want to discipline, sell discipline, buy rules, managing drawdown risk. So at Revere, we constantly adjust risk. We're constantly managing risk. And so we're making adjustments on a, on a daily basis. That's really what you pay active management for, in my opinion. And if you have a fiduciary advisor, ask them what their sell discipline is. Ask them what their rules are. Or are they just putting you in a pie chart based on your age and your station in life and your assets? So everybody that looks like you, if they're a wimp, they get a number eight pie chart. If they're moderate, they get a, get a 10. And if they're aggressive, they get a 14. If you're doing that, it doesn't matter if you're a fiduciary or not. Even a commission guy, because you'll recoup those commissions over time, if you're holding it for the long term and you're just going to market cycles, I don't think there's as much distinction. I don't think it matters. Anyway, that's food for thought. But if you don't have a fiduciary advisor, you need to ask yourself why not. Oftentimes, it's a relative. It's a brother-in-law, and you can't help it. Because uh, not getting divorced is more important than, than having a better investment strategy. I get it. But if you have a choice, if it's not your brother-in-law, there may be a better way. All right. Now, let's talk about AI. Um, we're going to talk about the markets, but everybody has been focused on these big, big, they call them the Magnificent Seven, these stocks that have just rocketed up this year. And it was based on AI. It was NVIDIA, Microsoft, all these other companies. And they've gone up so much, and, and, and everybody's talking about that, but there's other pockets that are showing strength. And we're going to talk about that along with these, uh, the top, the special rebalancing, because that's actually kind of, those, those two topics are kind of related, because the special rebalancing 
what the NASDAQ, the QQQ, excuse me, the NASDAQ 100 QQQ ETF. It's a huge, huge, big, big ETF, and it has the NASDAQ 100 stocks. Well, these top five or six stocks represent over 50% of the QQQ exposure. So just six stocks are basically half the whole QQQ, the NASDAQ 100. Okay. They said, we don't like that. So they said any stock that's 5% or more position in QQQ, you add all those together. So if you've got six stocks that represent more than a 5% position size, you add all those together. If that is over 50%, we got to trim those down and we got to trim that down to where it's, I think, Don, 37 and a half or 35, 30, 38 and a half, 38 and a half percent. And so that's going to put some selling pressure on the NVIDIA, on the Microsoft, on those big Tesla, on those big companies. And so that's going to tie in with the news, uh, the um, um, mailbag. But very quickly before I hit that, I did put a list in the, in the, um, new, in the show notes about a, there's a website you can go to and it's a list and I cringe when I say this, Don's going to slap me. Um, there is a list of fixed annuities in there that gives you a ranking of the highest paying fixed annuities. Now for 15, for 10 years, fixed annuities have been worthless because the yields were at zero. They're not worth They're not good. You couldn't get a quote safe fixed return. Now the fixed annuities are around five, 6% and they're more palatable. I still don't like them. It's still tax. It's income first and, and principal second when you take them out. So they're not tax efficient. And yes, I know there's a few rules that if you take it out over a series of scheduled payments, you can set it up so it's a pro rata income and return of principal. And so you can kind of help, you can fix that a little bit with certain annuities. But the whole point is most annuities, we don't, we, first of all, we don't do annuities. We don't like them. We don't think they're, they're expensive and they're clumsy. But if you're going to do an indexed annuity or variable, please call me first. Don't. Don't. Now, if you're really, really looking for some kind of fixed income, those are kind of starting to come back in favor because the interest rates are higher. Anyway, enough said. If you ever want to talk about annuities, I'm very good at it. I just don't. I mean, there's only very few circumstances where they should be used, in my opinion. They're way overused. All right. Back to the heart of the show. So for, for a couple months now, we said the market has been getting better. It's been broad. Well, we said a couple months ago, the market started rallying, and it was really those big Magnificent Seven we're talking about. Those stocks were really starting to heat up, right? But the rest of the market wasn't. There was not a lot of breath. And just about a month ago, three weeks ago, the breath started expanding pretty rapidly, and mid-cap and small-cap and other stocks started doing well. It wasn't just a magnificent seven. And that's when we came out and said, the train is leaving the station. Are you on board? It doesn't matter if you're scared. It doesn't matter what you think. And as long as you have a cell discipline, you can participate knowing that you may get stung, but you're not going to get creamed. You might, you got a cell discipline. So you're limited on how much you're going to lose. Okay. But we said the train is leaving the station and you, you need to participate in some fashion. What that looks like, I, I, I don't know, but, but you, you need to do something. And, and that is what's happened. We've had this big, strong, strong rally over the past month. 
And then yesterday, we had a pretty harsh sell-off, and it was precipitated by Tesla and by Netflix. And then you got a lot of contagion around the big, big tech bellwethers. So my question to the Revere team is, the train left the station, and it started to go to its destination. Now it's got to pit. Now it's now is it is it time to get off? Should you get off the train or should you keep riding? In other words, does this uptrend that we've been having does it is it sustainable? How will you know? What are you looking at? Or do you need to get defensive? So I'm going to read this mailbag letter because it's perfectly apropos. It fits right into the theme of this week's show, and that is: Do you pause? Or do you keep staying the course and stay on the train? All right. This is last Monday. This is GJ. 717. Hi, guys. Little Tesla seems to be like today as it's up $8 a share. Uh, thanks for including me on options. Okay. Uh, can you share how long you're planning on? Can you share how you're planning to handle earnings release after the market close on Wednesday? This is for Tesla. Uh, I know we should not predict, but James Ropel advises to make life-changing money. You have to invest in a true market leader. Um, um, then hold through four to six beat and raise quarters. My plan for my core holding. That's my plan for my core holdings. Last quarter, uh, Tesla dropped from earnings from around 180 uh, to a low of about 152. And now it's up almost 300. Double in the past quarter. So now it sounds like he's kind of assuming it that's going to repeat, and it might. So I am personally holding and fully invested with my cash. Any plans you can share on options around this earnings release? Thanks, GJ. This is Don's answer, 717, same day, Monday. Hi, GJ. I will discuss our risk management strategy for Tesla on earnings in tonight's video. So if you want to listen to how we were going to well, Don's going to mention it here too, probably, but you can hear an in-depth uh, thing if you go back to uh, our Market Insights, Daily Insights on 717 on our website, okay? Then my answer, with regard to the option strategies, we are looking for growth stocks poised to break out off a number of things. Bounce off the 20, 200 simple moving average, uh, 821 EMA cross, or other technical indicators along with the fundamentals so that probabilities of a short-term breakout are in favor. We do not look for options on Tesla specifically. He really loves Tesla. But when and if the setup arises, we take a position. We already have some calls on Tesla when you got a options approval. And I have added the January 2025 lead 400 strike to the larger account. Um, but a, a larger account because if Tesla disappoints, there's lots of time value on the option. So it won't get creamed like a regular option or like meaning this year. So it's got a lot of time left. We cannot do in the smaller account because the option is too expensive. It would take far too much your portfolio size. Even for your larger account, Tesla option is 4% position the, on the outer limits of our option sizing. So folks, no, a couple of things in there because there's some gold nuggets. When you're using options, sizing is critical and crucial. You need to know the maximum loss and the maximum effect on the total portfolio. Picking the right option is important, okay? And for this one, uh, the, uh, Tesla had already kind of had a, a run and it was somewhat extended. We took a, an option further out, okay? But the main thing, forget so much about the options talk in this email. 
the main gist of it is he was emailing on Monday, Tuesday, and Tesla and NVIDIA and all those companies were rocking, doing great. He was excited. We were excited. Everything's going great. Then all of a sudden, Thursday, yesterday came around, and they all took a, took a hit. So here we are today, and I'm going to turn it over to Don and Team Revere, and we're going to talk about all those things. Don, go ahead. Uh, sure, great. So let's start with what our plan was for handling uh, options. This is a, a spreadsheet grid that I use. Uh, it has different scenarios. This started with Monday, what our size in-house on Tesla was. Monday, it was 5.65% of the portfolio. And then I look at what is the what is the expected move? It's called the market maker move. We get this from our Thinkorswim platform uh, on earnings. And on Monday, the expected move was $18.26. That's either a plus or a minus. It's not a guarantee in either direction, which is about a 6.38% move. Now we've seen growth stocks that we own, worst case scenario, make a two times the expected move. And we are aggressively conservative when it comes to protecting uh, the downside, in particular with earnings. Some people think you shouldn't even hold through earnings because it's uh, a complete gamble. We, we don't believe that's the case. We wanna be prudent about it though. So the prudent uh, metric that we've decided in-house is in a worst case scenario, a 2% move to the downside on Tesla, we are going to cap our loss at 1% of the overall portfolio. And then we just back in to the size that we're permitted to have based on the price going in and the expected move. So uh, by right before, uh, at or at uh, Wednesday's close, right before Tesla, the price was at uh, 292, the expected move was $20.20. The portfolio size was 575. Uh, two times the expected move would take the stock down to 251. And the maximum size that we could have if we got the 2% downside expected move and capped our loss at 1% of the portfolio, the maximum size we're allowed to have was 7.23%, um, which was acceptable because our size going in was 5.75. So this, this is just, just, these are just some edits built in to say, is the size okay? If it's not, then you need to reduce. Like for example, if we had a 9% size, our maximum was 7.84%, we would have to reduce uh, the size of the overall portfolio. So that was our plan going in. Now, as far as uh, handling uh, the position that we had, we, we've made three buys on Tesla over uh, the course of of this year, the first one, let me get to another tab on my spreadsheet here very quickly. So we first got into it um, uh, at 290 and, sorry, at 190 and 196 on 523 and 526. So te this was Tesla's prior earnings. It had a negative reaction to it. It took it six days for it to stop going down and put in a bottom, and then it started up the right side. They had a um, they had a uh, shareholder, not shareholder. They had an analyst meeting, 
And the stock started to act completely different after that analyst meeting. And this is where we took our position on this break above here, 526 and 523. It was a couple of days after because uh, we saw a change in character at the stock. We saw it get above the 50-day moving average. It was still above the 200, but volume was coming in and it looked like it stopped going down. The market was acting okay. So we took our first two buys in there. And then the third buy we did on 627 when it pulled back here near the 21-day moving average. So we're managing three separate cost uh, bases on this. So at its high up, up around 300, we had uh, about 50% gains on those first two buys and about uh, significantly less on 627. So really, if our stops started to get hit and we use the 21-day exponential moving average to handle uh, a lot of our portfolio. Uh, with bigger gains, we give it down to the 50-day moving average very often. But when Tesla started to break below the 21 after earnings, uh, we cut the gains uh, on the 627 buy. We ended up with about an 8% gain on that. And that's just, um, that just hit our tolerance. It was over a 20% gain. It shrunk to a 7.4% gain and it broke a key area. Uh, so add those all, add all those things up, and we're looking at protecting the downside. We're not thinking about how much money we can make on the upside anymore. We'll give it more room for uh, the buys that we have back here, but for newer clients coming in, uh, holding something based on a, a legacy cost basis is not how we do things. Very actively managing the gains uh, for new clients that came in all throughout this period here. And that's, uh, one of the critical value adds that, that we have for our clients is not everybody just gets the same, uh, sales price. We are conscious of what your cost basis is, and we don't want significant money to be lost, especially if you just brought your account over to us. So we did trim that, um, when it broke the 21 day moving average, it looks like now the 21 day moving average is rolling over and that was actually in sync with the high for today. So it appears as though that 21 day moving average is now flipping from support, which is where we bought it down here to resistance. And until this is a change in character for Tesla, uh, until we can get back above that 21 day moving average, we're thinking more defense than offense uh, on buying or adding to Tesla. Uh, now, if it breaks today's low, we'll consider either selling some more uh, or hedging. They have one of the good things about Tesla is it's very liquid and it also has ETFs that you can use to hedge it directly. And this is especially for clients that have 40% gains. They don't want to pay taxes if they don't have to, but we can buy um, we can buy the equivalent of a downside. It's sort of like using options, but you get a one to one correspondence on it because you can buy. Uh, TSLQ or TSLS, those are ETFs, but they trade in sync with the stock. In other words, if Tesla's up 1% on the day, they're, they're going to be down 1% on the day and vice versa. So uh, that's another way to hedge the downside while Tesla decides if it wants to form a full base, which in case it could come all the way down to the 50-day moving average, which is another 11% to the downside, or it could pause at a round number like 250 that acted as a support resistance area over here in June, uh, or it could go right back up after a couple of days. And if it does, we can recoup our position. We really like the stock, we really like the story, but we also liked the story over here last year 
when it peaked at 314 and over the last three months dropped to 102. We're just not in love with the story enough to lose 68% of our money uh, because we think the story's good. The market price is the market price. It doesn't matter what the outlook of the company is. I mean, what really has changed with Tesla uh, from September of last year? You know, we've got closer to the Cybertruck production, a little closer to the semi-truck production. Uh, they've cut prices. They've raised prices to seek demand. Uh, they've added some uh, other auto manufacturers to start using their charging station. That's going to develop some revenue for them. But for the most part, the story isn't significantly different than it was back in August and September when the stock was at 314 than it was back at the end of December and January when the stock was 100. So we always want to match our thesis in the stock to the price and losing 68% of your money is just foolish in my opinion. We'll wait for the price to match up with the story. That's what we did when it started acting better and we got in here around 190, added to it on the way up around 240. Uh, and then now it's topped at 300. And until that changes, this is a good story that's in consolidation or pullback mode and we're gonna manage our risk accordingly. All right, hey, by, by and, the way, uh, go, go ahead. I'm sure you have some uh, interpretations to do on. Uh, well, no, actually, that what you did. Actually, you did very well. I don't have anything to add except you were talking about the investment business or the or the, uh, the you know in in a lot of play like you were talking about individually managing those pieces based on new clients that came in, right? Identifying them, folks. In most advisors, it's not the investment business; it's the changing of the investment business. Because if they're brokers, if they're not a fiduciary, they don't get paid unless they have you in their stuff. So when your account transfers in with all the stuff you have, they liquidate your entire account and then they go buy their stuff the very first day. Doesn't matter whether it's extended too high, too low, or whether it's timely or not. They just mirror everybody's portfolio that already exists in that strategy. Like Don was saying, we've got previous uh, clients that had Tesla at a much lower cost basis and have a much bigger cushion and gains built in, right? And so in any event, in the brokerage world, it's the changing of the investment business and they just sell everything lock, stock and barrel and put you in their stuff. In Revere, when you transfer in, first thing Don does is he looks at your stuff and says, dog, 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 sell, sell, sell. These two are actually acting right. I like these. Here's where the stop would be. Here I'm setting my alert. Um, this one's good. And then here of our stocks we have, these two are extended. We're on profit watch. This one may not work out. It's close to our stop. So I'll wait. If it firms up again, they may get it. But for right now, they're not going to get it. These three are still within buy range. We'll get these three stocks. And then going forward, you get in with each new buy. So you'll get it assimilated. And it may take two or three weeks or a month or it take, may take three months. It depends on the market action, not us. So I'm sure you're used to the old uh, uh, places, Merrill Lynch, Raymond James, that, that actually will just liquidate your entire account the very first day and just buy all their stuff because that's the way it is. One last thing I wanted to bring up because you were talking about downside protection and I kind of skimmed over that zero buffered ETF with zero downside risk. And I should have talked about that a little bit more. When, yes, you have zero downside risk. The problem is you cap your upside significantly. So it's a point-to-point -point two-year 
thing with a cap of 15%, divide that by two, it's 0.7.5% maximum. So if the market does really, really well, if the market makes 30%, meaning 15% annualized two years in a row, you only get seven, you get seven, you only get that 15, not the 30. So those downside protection indexed ETFs and these buffered ETFs, they actually, because they cap your upside, that significantly reduces the overall return over the long term. People don't realize that. So it really, it turns into like a three, four, 5% return. In fact, a lot of those things are structured to pay you that, even though it doesn't, it's not obvious. All right, Don, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, you want to flip to the uh, market analysis real quick here now, Dan? The market. do that. Yeah, no, yeah, market analysis, yeah. Okay. So uh, Dan talked about the big pullback yesterday in uh, the NASDAQ 100 and growth leaders. So what we're focused uh, on is the two big breakout areas that we've seen on the S&P and the NASDAQ. Uh, the first one was back on 6.2 where we broke above very clearly this consolidation level that we had, uh, went up, pulled back to the 21 day moving average, made another attempt to make new highs, didn't quite get there, pulled back again. But then on um, 712, we did break uh, above again. And then now we're in uh, the two step up, one step back, hopefully uh, scenario. So, this shows the levels on the S&P 500. The NASDAQ 100 levels are uh, significantly different. So here's the first breakout level there. Here's the second breakout level, but we're much closer to this pullback level on the NASDAQ 100. And you can see the relative strength heading lower with that big sell-off. It's not a change in character right now, as long as this breakout holds. It was a pretty harsh move down over the last two days, we tried to rally this morning and we're, we're uh, flat right now on the NASDAQ 100. So it is struggling a bit versus the S&P 500 and it's really not something that's unexpected. We've been pointing it out in our videos for weeks about how extended the NASDAQ 100 was uh, versus its uh, moving averages. And uh, in particularly focus on the 50-day moving average, because once you get 6% over the 50-day moving average, that's historically extended, uh, and you're always looking for the reversion to the mean. Now, um, we peaked back here at 11.6%. We got over 12% the next day over the S&P. We did one pullback and then another rally, another pullback. As of right now, that difference versus the 50-day moving average has shrunk all the way down to 5.5%, which is a lot more reasonable. And as long as we're still holding the breakout area and the 21-day moving average, they're kind of in sync there, uh, which is at around the 372 area. So that's the key area that we're watching on the overall health and welfare of the NASDAQ 100. Uh, they've got the big rebalancing taking place over the weekend that's going to shrink the percentages of the biggest uh, seven names in there. Uh, but what we've seen a lot over the last uh, three days, this is this is day three on it, is money coming out of these tech names, but flowing uh, into sectors like industrials, basic materials, staples, utilities, healthcare, real estate, 
And that's why the S&P 500 has been outperforming the NASDAQ 100, because if you've listened to any of my videos, you hear me say it all the time, all the rotation takes place within the S&P 500. This is a healthy rotation as opposed to money coming out of the market where you would see not only the NASDAQ 100 come down, but you'd see the S&P 500 coming down also. So rotation is healthy. Uh, selling obviously is not healthy, but we're not seeing the selling. We're seeing a gentle pullback on the S&P, haven't even broken the ADMA. We're still significantly above uh, the breakout level, uh, which is at the 21-day moving average, still another 2% above there. So uh, good stuff there on the S&P 500, not so good on the NASDAQ 100, but we're keeping an eye, uh, as always, on the pullbacks. Uh, and uh, when they, if they get unreasonable, nothing really has seemed unreasonable yet at this point. It seems harsh, but when you go straight up for seven or eight days, a pullback in the opposite direction does seem harsh, especially if you miss the move to the upside and you're late getting in. Uh, but uh, we've been reducing our exposure as we were overextended to the upside. Uh, our beta got up, adjusted beta got up to about a 2.3. It's down to a 1.5 now. So we've taken off a third of our um, exposure and we, we're looking to redeploy that when the um, pullback stops. We're watering the flowers and trimming the weeds, pulling the weeds, which means uh, we're adding more money to our names that are working and we're getting rid of the ones that are lagging and always looking for uh, the next big thing or emerging leaders. And you're going to see a lot of them uh, as earnings starts taking place. You'll see some that are leaders fall by the wayside, like you saw with Netflix and uh, Tesla at this point. Doesn't mean it's they can't change. But for now, the bloom is off the rose with those names. And you'll see names like uh, that are that have gapped up on earnings that we'll be keeping an eye on. One in particular that we're, we were watching was AEHR. It had a big, nice move up, but with the pullback in growth stocks, it's reclaimed a lot of that move, but just right to the ADMA, which is a natural area for it to pause. So uh, this is something that's on, a, on our watch list as a possible buy as a future leader. And that's pretty much how we run things all day here. We're, we're looking at what's holding up, looking at what's not, uh, pulling the weeds, watering the flowers, uh, watching the new money that came in to make sure that uh, our cost basis is managed appropriately and um, protecting the downside as always. That's always job number one. <laughs> Absolutely. We always say uh, uh, we manage risk first and the returns take care of themselves. Right. And by the way, right. real quick. So both, uh, I, I just want to clarify this for the listeners, both on the NASDAQ and the S&P, if you look, we're making higher highs and higher lows. Is that an accurate statement? That is an accurate statement. That's that's the pure definition of an uptrend is higher highs and higher lows. Thank you. And you know, until that changes, we'll that's it's we're trend followers. We'll stick with the trend. Um, when consolidations happen and they break out, that the the breakout should occur in the in the direction of the prior trend. And if it doesn't, that's a change in character and we take appropriate action to uh, defend ourselves because uh, that's meant what was working prior is, is, has changed. So, um, and that's, that's why we keep a, a big, uh, a big percentage in the SSO because uh, we catch all that rotation. S&P, yeah. Minimum, S&P, S&P, yeah, 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 yeah. SSO is the two times S&P. Yeah. 
uh, we do that to uh, maximize our uh, capital yeah. uses of uses of our usage of our capital. Yeah, but uh, so that's where we are right now. All right, well, let's let's hear from the team. Michael, let's go to you first. Okay. So this week I wanted to talk about. Uh, I've seen some news on uh, on Taiwan Semiconductor, and there was a Wall Street Journal article about it. Um, and what they are, Taiwan Semi, if you haven't heard of them, they're the world's top contract chip maker, which means that they manufacture semiconductors according to the designs of other companies. So when companies like NVIDIA need chips produced, NVIDIA actually designs the chips, and then Taiwan Semi is, is the manufacturer of those chips. So they use the designs and then manufacture them in their, in their factories. And the news was that they're delaying the start of new production of chips at their Arizona factory until 2025. So they've been building out this big factory in Arizona to bring some of that, that part of the supply chain of these chips back to the U.S. And it was meant to be in full-scale production uh, early 2024 or around 2024. And now they're uh, postponing it until 2025. And... What they're saying here and what's interesting about it is that they're, they claim they can't find enough skilled workers in the U.S. and they may need to bring in experienced uh, technicians temporarily from Taiwan. And that may be true. It is a little interesting. We, we have seen that there is a labor shortage in the U.S. Unemployment's at record lows and it is difficult to find highly skilled workers for certain jobs. So that... I'm sure that is a factor, but part of it too, and this is just sort of speculation, it, it, it could it could have something to do with pressure from China. And the reason why I say this is because as we all know, the US and China uh, have worsening relations. Uh, the, the, that's been making headlines, it's no secret. And there have been several restrictions placed on exports of certain US chips to China, they, these really high tech, high quality chips they've restricted those exports to China. And it is a national security issue for the US to reshore the supply chain, or not really reshore because we've never had this, this chip manufacturing capability that Taiwan has, but to bring that, that uh, capability to the US because we don't wanna have this geopolitical uncertainty. If something were to happen with China, they were to make a move on Taiwan, blockade, do anything of that nature, it would really, affect uh that industry for us so so just just because we don't want to get into that type of situation it is really important for national security to bring those that manufacturing capability to the u.s well we, we we already we already got in we already we already got into it now we're trying to get out of it now we're trying to get not so dependent over there right yeah exactly yeah yeah um and something else uh, worth noting is that while there has been surging demand from AI companies, there's been a serious slump in demand for chips in smartphones, sir, uh, smartphones, cars, um, and, and different applications. Uh, the, the main usage for semiconductors at the moment isn't AI, it's, it's all of these other, other applications. And as you can see, if you compare Texas Instruments or really, any other semiconductor company, microchip, MCHP to NVIDIA, you can see that divergence in 
performance and Texas Instruments and these other companies in their earnings reports have mentioned that there's been a, a massive decrease in demand for, for a lot of their chips. And something worth noting is that the semiconductor industry is highly cyclical and they, they sort of give us a, an overview of the health of the global economy and demand has been weakest from China as the, the expected recovery in that, in that part of the world hasn't materialized. So we do have this, this hope and this move and this surging demand from AI, but, but currently AI, uh, these AI chips only account for 6% of Taiwan Semi's revenues, and they expect it to increase to 10% over the next few years, but it's still a, a relatively small percentage of their, their revenues. So something to keep an eye on is the health of, of the rest of the, the markets for semiconductors and AI, it's still very early to tell what kind of impact that's going to have on the global economy. That could be the saving grace. It could, it could revolutionize the world, but it is important to, to keep an eye on the, the rest of these semiconductors and, and how they're, they're performing because that gives a, the main use cases for semiconductors are still in these other applications. And, and we need to, to sort of look at that because as I said, it's highly cyclical. And the last point I wanna make is that, um, I think that's it actually. Um, so yeah, keep, keep an eye on, on China. Uh, I, I saw an article as well that Kathy Wood we mentioned a few weeks ago that a lot of firms are exiting China, a lot of um, investment firms, and Kathy Wood has officially, it, it looks like officially completely exited China. So tensions could continue to rise and, and that, that's really, yeah, geopolitical um, issues could cause a lot of disruptions. All right, thanks, Mike. Appreciate that. Good insight. Uh, I think I thought the key takeaway for me when I first read the headline with TSM was like they're lowering guidance. How could they lower guidance when uh, they're basically in the industry that everybody is pointing as a need? But when they break down the fact that they make all these different kind of chips for all uh, for all these different kind of purposes, and those purposes outside of AI were slowing down, and they're not going to commit full board to AI because they don't know for sure if that increased demand for those chips is going to continue. So they're they're trying to toe the line uh, and maximizing their productivity, just like every other company uh, is. Thanks a lot, Mike. Uh, let's move on to Connor, and uh, he's got an interesting chart that we're going to take a look at and then we'll go to Ted who's got nine interesting charts for us to take a look at. Yeah, so um, this week I wanted to talk about some rotation that we're seeing. Um, and the first chart I wanted to show, this is the ratio of the Dow Jones to the QQQ, the NASDAQ. So it's no secret that uh, tech's been hot this year and it's been outperforming everything else. but. When, uh, when you looked at the ratio, ratio between the Dow Jones and the Qs, it, it was getting pretty low. And what we've seen this week is Dow Jones has, uh, the last two to three days, um, it's been outperforming the NASDAQ, the S&P. And that's partly due to some weak earnings from, weak earnings reactions from Netflix and Tesla. But 
you know, when you look at this, given how low it got, um, one could start to think that maybe some of these Dow Jones laggard stocks start getting some money flow and this ratio just uh, cleared the 21 EMA. And so what I want to go into about that is, you know, how, how can you find rotation? How can you see it sometimes before it happens? So Don, if you want to just pull up a chart of the Dow DIA on MarketSmith. So yeah, so the Dow broke out this week. Um, it, it's a slower mover. It was setting up and it broke out this week, but if you look at the relative strength line, it, it's clearly been underperforming, but it is character change to see that get through the, the 21 EMA. But, but last week, um, a lot of stocks from the Dow were starting to make moves, find some buyers before the Dow broke out. So if you pull up UNH, this is a big Dow Jones component and it, it gapped down heavy on earnings, super negative reaction, but then it got bought up right away. And you can see it gapped down to that 445 area. And then within three days, it was already back up to 500 above the 200 day moving average. So that was kind of your first sign that, hey, okay, maybe people are seeing value in, um, in these names as they've taken a hit for a while and have massively underperformed. And then there's, you know, if you go to MCD, this is McDonald's. This is another Dow Jones uh, component, slower mover, um, you know, more of a defensive name, but this one's been, um, it had that huge run up from 260 to, to about 300, it pulled back. And then now it's almost trying to form a secondary cup and handle um, as well. So this is another name in the Dow that's, you know, it's not giving a lot of alpha, but you can read between the lines when you see some of these names starting to set up. And then um, Don, if you wanna go to Home Depot, this is another one that I was seeing. This is a Dow component as well. And like I said, this one's trying to break out of a cup and handle. And one common thing theme we're seeing is a lot of the relative strength lines for these names are getting back above the 21 uh, EMA. So that, that's definitely a bullish sign for these names. But kind of uh, the moral of the story for me and, and when when you see this is that you know, when we're screening every day and, and we're seeing stocks, mo more times than not, the stocks are gonna lead you to the sector. So when you would have seen these defensive names starting to get a bid, some of the Dow names, um, that could lead you to reason that maybe tech cools off and some of these names see some money flow. But nevertheless, it's uh, it'll be interesting to watch if this rotation continues because all year there's been a couple days of rotation out of tech and then and then it's right back into it. So that's something we're watching out for to to help us get a better idea on on market direction. Good stuff, Connor. I want to point out, uh, you know, I've been talking a lot in the videos about how terrible the relative strength line has been for the Dow, and we're looking for a change in character on that. And we recently added this 21-day exponential moving average. It uh, is a fairly new feature in MarketSmith, uh, but pretty much in line with the chart that you showed, how the ratio just got back above the 21, the relative strength line did also. 
and that corresponded very nicely with uh, the breakout of the base there. So another tool in the toolbox, the relative strength uh, moving average line, uh, combine that with price uh, to uh, confirm, not guess, but to actually have a, a data-driven decision point. Uh, so appreciate that, Connor. Uh, last but not least, we're going to go to Teddy Bull, who's got a bunch of charts uh, to show us. So, Ted, you want to start off here with, uh, let's see, this is, is it uh, the AD line, right, from the S&P? Yep. So going off what Dan and Don discussed about healthy sector rotation and breadth improving, um, I'm here to provide some evidence that that is the case with these following charts. This first one Don has up is that is the weekly chart of the S&P 500. Above it is the S&P 500 advanced decline line and the New York Stock Exchange advanced decline line. And as you can see, just like last week, we continue to make new highs in the S&P 500 advanced decline line. And then the New York Stock Exchange advanced decline line, we continue just to trend higher. Um, so that just, that just shows that stocks are participating and that is what we want to see in an uptrend, not just the, the magnificent seven um, holding up the markets like the first half of this year. This one is the NASDAQ 100 weekly chart and then it's advanced decline line. This is still pinned at the lows, but as you can see, it's starting to turn up a little bit, um, making higher high, like making a higher high recently, but we would like to see this come up, definitely come up more. So we see a, we see a weekly reversal candle now, so maybe we can get some digestion and then see, see more stocks participate and then hold up the markets. Um, so next, we have the net highs and lows for the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ. This is the New York Stock Exchange net highs and lows. Um, as you can see in this, in this last period, we've had the, the greatest persistent net highs we've seen in the last 1.5 to two years, surpassing that February area. And so that is good to see, and we would like to see this continue improving. Um, even better, we'd see, we would want to see one day where we get outstanding net highs, like 500 plus explosive action. That would really cement that more and more stocks are making new highs and participating. And then the NASDAQ one, the NASDAQ that Don had up also had the highest net high readings um, of this, this entire bear market and bear to bull transition. So that's also good to see. Now on the screen is the, is the McKellen summation index and which is also known as the NASI. And as you can see, even with Tesla and Netflix uh, reacting poorly to earnings, we still remain in the overbought territory and pretty much at a one, like pretty much the line is pointed at the one o'clock direction. So that nothing to fear or to be worried about quite yet. Um, so further, um, Don is gonna pull up the S&P 500 weekly chart and it's corresponding uh, readings for the percent of stocks above various key moving averages. The first, the top one is the 50 day, the middle one is 150 day, and the, the bottom chart is the 200 day. As you, as you can see, just again, like the advanced decline line, the net highs and lows, this is just more evidence that stocks are participating, stocks are trending above their key moving averages, which is exactly what we want to see. And then same with the NASDAQ, which is slightly weaker than the S&P 500 but we are, we're nearing that 50% level above the 200-day moving average, which is what we'd really want to see happen. Um, so just monitor these charts in the next coming weeks and see if we can get continued breadth expansion. 
going on, uh, I want to talk about sentiment a little bit. So traditionally, based off seasonality, we, we usually have a strong first half of July, and then we kind of take a break starting mid-July and then into September, and then, and then finish the year off on a strong note. So fear and greed has been pegged at this extremely extreme greed above 80 level. So definitely frothy sentiment levels. And maybe we get now a, a month and a half or a month digestion to, to cool, to, to cool down sentiment. Maybe bears come out of their caves a little bit and that could feel a year end rally. And then finally we have, no, not finally one more chart after this one, we have the AI sentiment. You see that the last four weeks we've been above historical averages. And last week we hit the highest um, bullish rating above 50%. I don't think I've seen that before, um, at least in the last two, two years. So that is definitely something to know. And maybe we need to cool down a little bit. That doesn't mean we just completely fail here and the rally's done, but maybe just like some digestion, which would, be which would definitely be healthy. Um, and then finally, I think Don, there's one more image that I sent separately. It's the, oh, it's the NAM. Okay. Reading. Yeah. It's still on the same email. Gotcha. Basically here, it, this just kind of shows like what money managers are doing, like whether they're deploying money, deploying capital with, or withdrawing it to cash. And we've seen some pretty frothy levels here as well, almost hitting a hundred in this last reading. So just continued um, evidence that we might be getting a little overheated in the short term, but this is good that money managers are, are definitely deploying their capital now. Um, so that is the end of breath and sentiment for this week. All right, Ted, thanks a lot. And uh, Dan, I think that wraps it up from the technical side so you can uh, bring us on home. Folks, listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor, just send them to revereasset.com. Up in the right-hand corner, there's a subscribe button. They can hit subscribe, put in their name and email address. We won't reach out to them or spam them in any way. It's up for them to reach out to us and ask a question or want a complimentary portfolio review, or if they just want a topic to discuss on the show. And so, um, you can reach out to any of us. You can email me, Dan at revereasset.com or Don, Mike, Ted, or Connor at revereasset.com. And you can always call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. We'll talk to you next week on your money. Because it's not how much you make in the markets, it's how much of that you can keep.
Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.